0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, our very own Laura Winter, the host of our Downlink podcast on key takeaways from the National Space Symposium, and Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, Joining us is Sam Bandet of the Center for Naval Analyses, who is among the world's top analysts on the Russian military and unmanned systems, particularly Moscow's. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Sam, welcome back, and it wouldn't be Monday without you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on again.
0: Uh, an absolute pleasure. Before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Sam, uh, we got to start off uh, some big news today. uh, As we tape on Monday morning, um, a Ukrainian uh, drone uh, attack on uh, the Russian fleet, Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Sevastopol, uh, and uh, an attack which the Russians say they blunted. What do we know at this point about the attack Uh, what it was trying to achieve, and whether it was
1: successful or not. The main point here is that the Ukrainians are continuing to stress Russian naval defenses in Sevastopol. Russians had to invest a lot in physical defenses like uh, multiple layers of netting and buoys. Russians are running maritime patrols, helicopter patrols. So there's a lot of human and material resources invested in trying to identify, interdict, and destroy vessels, which cost a tiny fraction of what it costs to attack the port. And that is exactly the point. Since the Russian naval vessels are kind of locked away in uh, in that port, they are not necessarily sitting ducks in that respect, but uh, as long as Ukrainians are basically putting these new technologies to the water and targeting Russian naval assets, which are in a stationary position in the port, uh, the, you know, the onus to defend and um, the uh, investment and all the resources are basically on the defender. And this way, uh, re- Ukrainian military keeps Russians basically trying to invest and continue to pour resources in trying to defend against these relatively cheap, relatively inexpensive systems, which nonetheless pose a significant threat as this morning's attack is demonstrated.
0: Um, Let me uh, take you to the oncoming offensive. Uh, Obviously, a lot of discussion about that. Last week, NATO members met uh, for the 11th time, supplying uh, Ukraine with more equipment, Challenger tanks uh, being sent, U.S. starting M1 tank training uh, sooner. So a lot of equipment is flowing. Some news reports still following from uh, the Discord uh, leaks um, talking about how American officials may have put pressure on Ukraine uh, to not strike uh, deep uh, into Russian territory, something which uh, Ukraine has used uh, unmanned assets for. From your standpoint, what do we know know this week about what this offensive is going to look like and what Russian defenses are going to look like? Because Russia has obviously been trying to marshal manpower and equipment uh, to defend, just like the Ukrainians have been working on the capability to attack.
1: Well, I think the main point right now is sort of the anticipation stage. Russians know the attack is coming. They've been digging in. They've been building tons of fortifications all along the line of contact, basically along the entire front and especially around the Crimea and um, Kherson and Zaporozhye areas. Uh, Ukrainians are concentrating the resources as well. Russians are concerned that Ukrainians may be successful in, uh, in their initial breakthroughs. It is not clear what the outcome of this attack may be depending on where it comes and what kind of weapons Ukrainians are using. One thing that I've been tracking, especially on Russian-language telegram channels, is that extreme concern amongst Russians at the front, Russians on the ground, that Ukraine will have an advantage in UAVs in this attack, and that Ukraine will send waves and waves of small-sized UAVs, especially FPV kamikaze drones, against Russian air defense positions, putting enormous stress on Russian defenders, trying to expand resources— and uh, basically revealing their uh, positions along the front. And that attack will be followed by missiles, by long range artillery from Ukraine, by uh, aircraft. And again, it will put enormous stress on the Russian defenders. But Russians have been anticipating this. And like I said, they've been digging in and they've been devoting resources. Um, the attack probably was supposed to come sooner. Uh, now, now, Russians are saying the, uh, the Ukrainian strike may be anticipated sometime in early summer. So uh, both sides are preparing for this attack, and Russian military has been investing enormous resources in trying to defend against it.
0: Um, Let me uh, take you to uh, the question of manpower. Uh, A lot of people are talking about the Russian manly, uh, Russian ads uh, that have been running on TV. Obviously, Russia having a challenge recruiting. We heard uh, news stories last week, uh, uh, or saw news stories uh, that, um, you know, some 20 percent uh, uh, have AIDS and uh, the Russian state have given them the choice. You either go to the front uh, or I cut off your medicine, which certainly is um, terrible, uh, if true. Um, what's what, what does this Russian manly ad campaign really mean? Because it also plays into domestic politics to a degree, U.S. domestic politics.
1: Well, I, I can't verify the medical story, but the ad is basically showing Russian men Uh, in their late 20s to early 40s, doing their regular civilian things that they're doing, working their jobs. Uh, But the ad implies that the jobs that they're doing are not basically allowing these men to live up to the full potential. They're not being real men, quote unquote. And a real man is a man in uniform with a gun who fights at the front. And so the ad is basically suggesting that in order for Russians to feel and be real men, they have to become soldiers and they have to join the Russian military. So again, this is an appeal to to some form of, um, or at least some part of Russia's patriotic population. Uh, It is an appeal to kind of, um, to the Russian man's sort of um, masculinity in the sense that a soldier, a warrior ethos uh, has an enormous importance in Russian history and in Russian social cultural discourse. And to be a warrior is uh supposed to be basically a very respectable position in society, and this is an appeal to that as well. And of course, it's an ad. It uh, it is a staged ad. And uh, if we recall, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Russians were running a recruitment ad which showed a lot of very big, burly, muscular Russian men uh, running around and and training for the war. And this ad caused a lot of hyperventilation uh, here in the U.S. because some some politicians thought that Russian ad, which is again a staged, um, made-up ad, is showing how Russian military is in fact ten foot tall and full of muscles, while while U.S. military was running ads uh, appealing to um, all kinds of um, interests and backgrounds across uh, uh, young people in the United States, and that caused again a lot of people here in, in the U.S. to think that Russian ad was actually a true manifestation of what. Russian military is and is, and what it is capable of. Of course, when the war started, um, you know, the ads aren't necessarily telling the full story. And it is, in fact, um, diverse backgrounds of many Ukrainian defenders, civilian and military, which really contributed to their success. It's interesting that this ad is trying to recruit for the military because over the weekend, Yevgeny Prigozhin released a long video about uh, his, uh, his Wagner group's um, fight in Ukraine. He was talking about the Russian elites, and he revealed that Dmitry Peskov's son, that is the official spokesman of the Kremlin, was in fact serving in the Wagner forces. And a lot of people on Telegram were questioning why would a son uh, of a one of the top Russian officials not actually join the military? Why did he have to join a private military group where he may have been given a privileged position. Uh, And so these kind of questions are swirling around in Russian society. It's unclear how many men will respond to the macho ad. It is unclear how many people are going to volunteer for the service. It's clear that a lot of people are still trying to sort of escape and leave the country because they don't want to fight in this war. Um, I want to uh, take you to one last uh, question, uh, which
0: is uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, a small group of uh, Azeri environmental demonstrators, and everybody knows that that's not what they are, have been blocking access from uh, Armenia to the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, over which several wars have been fought. There were reports over the weekend, you and I exchanged texts on a regular basis to keep each other appraised of stuff, and you brought this to my attention, uh, that Armenia's uh, president, Nikol Pashinyan, had put a statement out effectively um, changing the dynamic and saying that both states should go back uh, both Azerbaijan as well as uh, Armenia should go back to their Soviet boundaries, which would suggest that the autonomous uh, enclave, right, that was an Armenian enclave within the Azeri state, uh, as opposed to it being an independent state connected to Armenia. Walk us through what Pashinyan's statement really means ultimately, because it's very profound on this April twenty-four. Uh, the commemoration of the Armenian genocide of 1915 uh, 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 that claimed uh, the lives of 1.5 million Armenians at the hands uh, of Ottoman Turkey.
1: It is, uh, it is, in fact, an incredible statement because, in effect, it reverses decades of policies, decades of military investment, and decades of wars uh, for uh, Nagorno-Karabakh's independence against Azerbaijan. Recognition of Azerbaijan within Soviet borders would put, as you said, Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan as an autonomous region. And uh, a lot of conflict in the Caucasus began with the um, fight for independence by the people of Nagorno-Karabakh in 1988 as perestroika was gaining steam and as the Soviet control over its far-flung regions started to unravel. And so actually the conflict between the ethnic Armenians and, and Azerbaijanis in that region uh, was one of the major conflicts which after the fall of Soviet Union uh, actually blew up in a full-scale war, which Nagorno-Karabakh won with Armenia's help. The recognition of Azerbaijani control of, Nagorno, of Nagorno-Karabakh would essentially put a lot of these efforts into question. So what happens to all the sacrifices, to all the decades of, of strife between Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan. But um, Nicole Pashinian is following um, an old and sometimes proven formula of territory for peace. It worked for some belligerents. It certainly worked, for example, for Israel and Egypt when Israel handed back a Sinai Peninsula, which they started to populate and develop uh, following the 1967 uh, 73 wars in exchange for peace with Egypt, which held and will hopefully will continue to hold. Um, Pashinin is probably thinking that Armenia should be better integrated economically uh, into the Caucasus because a lot of uh, infrastructure projects, uh, a lot of revenue streams are physically and literally bypassing Armenia. For example, Bakud-Belishi-Jehan pipeline and the railroads, they actually go north from Azerbaijan to Georgia and then south into Turkey, bypassing Armenia altogether. And so hopefully integrating Armenia into the larger Caucasus would enable Armenia to develop and result in peace. But again, this kind of puts in question uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and Nagorno-Karabakh's war for independence and the efforts put by Nagorno-Karabakh people um, in, in this in this particular conflict, which lasted since 1992. It's unclear what the Azerbaijani reaction is going to be. It's unclear what the Armenian society's reaction is going to be right now long-term if this actually is going to go um, to the finish line. I'm not a caucuses expert. I'm an observer, as you've indicated, but right. it is certainly an area I'm looking at precisely because the wars between Armenia and Azerbaijan now involve new technologies. And Armenia has been arming itself with drones uh, following its loss to Azerbaijan. And the yeah. Azerbaijani victory in 2020 was in fact assured in many respects with new technologies like drones and loading munitions. Uh, but it would be an interesting resolution. Two decades of conflict. It would also place Russia's role in question as well, because right now Russia acts as a guarantor of Armenian territory. There's a Russian military base in southern Armenia. If in fact the Soviet borders are recognized, then the Russian peacekeepers are probably not necessary. So, uh, right. would Russia actually vacate? Would it uh, leave its base? Would it leave Armenia and Azerbaijan facing each other again? These are right. uh, questions that don't have a lot of answers. Uh, right. And so there's a lot of history here. So. Uh, in, in, indeed. And the
0: one thing uh, that I would uh, I would add is right now, the Russians are not actually doing their job, right? They're supposed to keep the corridor open. Uh, and in, in fact, uh, this kind of environmental group that's blocking the Lachin corridor uh, or access through the Lachin corridor is, is doing it basically to bring uh, Nagorno-Karabakh to its knees. And it is effectively uh, doing that because the situation there is very dire. And I don't uh, at this point know enough to know whether that's playing into Pashinyan's Uh, and uh, Vartanian's uh, calculations. Uh, Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, Really appreciate it. And especially your thoughts uh, on an important issue on a very important uh, day of commemoration uh, around the world. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bago. And as it's Monday, joining us now is my good friend Byron Callan of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bago. Uh, Indeed, uh, pleasure is all mine. Let's uh, very quickly start with uh, last week in hearings. I want to get to Lockheed Martin's earnings and your takeaways uh, in a moment. But what were the things that last week jumped out at you in the course of what was an uh, action-packed hearing week?
2: I think there's always, there are a lot of little things, Vago, that you listen for in these, you know, that really get down to programmatic details. I mean, as usual, and as you would certainly expect, there was pushback on the Navy uh, shipbuilding plans. You know, there are some interesting nuances on FARA, uh, the, the future armed reconnaissance aircraft that the Army is planning. Um, you know, there's an analysis of alternatives that has to be uh, completed for that program. And it's been delayed because of some issues with the GE ITEP engine, although um, Army witnesses that spoke seem to think that GE had its arms around those issues that had caused a delay that're mainly due, due to issues with subcontractors and I, I gather some 3D printing 3D printed products um and then you know the tanker program was another one that came up and just kind of this gap I think between NGAS gas which is the next generation uh, tanker the smaller tanker that's being considered uh, by the Air Force but, um, you know, I'd expect, and I don't think this is news to anybody, that there'd be, there'd be there would be the Air Force is going to buy more KC-46s above and beyond the the current program of record. Um, and then, of course, you know, the final comment, and this is just a consistency uh, that I've seen. You know, the B-21 program seems to be doing very well. It's at least encouraging to see that some major
0: defense program uh, is being well executed. And I know how hard. Uh, northrop is uh working on that you know men- mentioning uh fara um you know there are uh, there is a miter study that suggests that that the future armed reconnaissance aircraft will need uh, a human occupant in it uh, in the future so i think that that's uh certainly uh interesting uh to uh see how the army is thinking about this you know at a time when people are debating whether or not there should be a manned helicopter component to this. Uh, obviously, sort of a rematch between Bell uh, and uh, Sikorsky uh, in the wake of uh, uh, future long-range assault aircraft.
2: Yeah, and um, I will say this, just related to that, Fargo. I don't think that like the eVTOL concepts, you know, those aren't going to work in, in an expeditionary environment uh, where you don't have a ready charging infrastructure. And just related to that, you know, it, it was pretty clear from some of the Navy witnesses that testified that, you know, Flora is too big for surface combatants. FARA is too small for some of the missions that are currently undertaken by the uh, the MH-60 Romeo and Sierra. So they're going to need uh, another vertical-left platform. <clears throat> and it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds because uh, that's a longer-term opportunity for industry.
0: Uh, in Indeed. Um let me take you uh, to Lockheed's earnings, uh, leading the way for the group, obviously, more following this week uh, and next. What are the things uh, that jumped out at you? Because I well, think I that what you put in your note was fascinating.
2: Yeah, well, I don't think there was a major surprise, You know, although the, it was interesting as a stock reacted positively on the print of earnings, and then it kind of gave it all away over the course of the week. Um I, I don't think it should be a surprise that <clears throat> they saw growth in their space segment. Uh year over year for the quarter, it was up 16%, but they kind of stuck with a two percent uh growth um estimate for the full year. So, you know, and some of the reasons that are cited, I think they, they're pretty well known. Classified space, um, strategic weapons that's tried and then of course, um the, the new interceptor that they're uh, competing against Northrop Grumman on. Um, I thought that the, you know, the overall tone, I guess the other point that I found interesting was operating margins were actually pretty good. And as much as there's been inflationary cost pressure, really not just in the industry, but in the economy, um, you know, Lockheed Martin seems to be doing fairly well containing those pressures. <clears throat> I don't know if that you could say that's either the, the basic conservatism of their plan, or they really are finding workarounds and, and offsets to the increases in labor and material costs that, that a lot of people are seeing these days. Um, I didn't see it as a particular, like a harbinger of, oh, there's going to be a sea change in expectations for the sector this week when a number of other companies report <clears throat> the other large primes in particular. And then in the following weeks when others report, um, at, at least nothing that I think would, would take markets aback. Uh, do, were you surprised that there was no commentary on the debt? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there were a couple of things I wrote it up. I mean, I think there are a couple of things that they really didn't address at all. No one asked, "What are you going to do if uh, you know we really do have a debt crisis um, because of Congress's inability to um, either pass a clean uh, debt ceiling raise, or you know it just gets mired in in these competing um, debates about discretionary and non-defense uh, spending? Uh, they they get mired in competing." arguments over defense and non-defense discretionary spending. Um, It was intriguing to me that there was really no commentary at all about the defense uh, finance report that was released and, and what DOD might be thinking about progress payments, particularly the flow down to subcontractors. I would have thought that earnings Call would have been a good platform to address some of those concerns that were raised by DoD, uh, but Lockheed Martin didn't, and I would I would think and hope that that issue comes up in some of the calls this week. Um, and I'll say one other thing, you know, and this may also harken back to the finance report. I think people probably need to think differently about how this industry is investing in technology. It kind of came up in the Q&A portion of the call that Lockheed held, but but also um, the CEO mentioned it uh, in prepared remarks. And that's just, A, these partnerships that Lockheed uh, continues to announce. I think they they talked about one with Juniper in the prepared remarks. And then during Q&A, they talked about LM Evolve, which is kind of their venture arm. And, you know, there, there are other ways to acquire and invest in technology instead of just a straight IRAD number uh, that, that people focus on. And, and so these other these other ways for industry to access commercial technology and apply it to defense needs, there has to be a better metric or or maybe industry could do a better job at just highlighting, hey. We are finding technology to, to bring the defense needs. It's not necessarily showing up in our labs and our plants uh, from our engineers, but we're finding ways to, to take technology and apply it to defense needs. And, and that just needs to be better articulated. Uh, let me
0: ask you, I mean, we're now, uh, as uh, I mentioned uh, to uh, Ron Epstein last, uh, yesterday on the business show, we're sort of in debt ceiling watch uh, now. Um, last week we briefly discussed uh, the plan. We know a little bit more now, right? I mean, the uh, the House Speaker wants a one year deal, uh, but also um, spending cuts, uh, government wide spending cuts. I mean, how do you how are you gaming this? Because uh, you don't have yet odds uh, on where we end up. But any do we know any more this week than we knew last week in terms of sentiment where we're going?
2: No, I mean, and you know, this is going to be a crucial week because of the vote that uh, Speaker McCarthy wants to take in the House to try and pass this package. I mean, my own view, you know, there was nothing in the uh, in the bill text on defense. There were there are top line discretionary numbers, but how that gets allocated is is a complete mystery. And you know, I, I still think that you know, this is all fine and dandy in principle to cut government spending. But when you start talking about specifics, that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where the political risk is for people who vote for something like this. And I think also for people who who actually have to mark it up in an appropriations process. And, you know, there's going to be an event this week where um, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, is going to be speaking at Brookings kind of talking about the CHIPS Act, but I think more broadly, you know, he's going to be looping in this idea that non-defense discretionary spending is also critical to national security. And that's just a message that um, people just don't seem to get these days that, uh, you know, when you talk about things like CHIPS Act or worker training, um, you know, the, the State Department diplomacy, all these other aspects that contribute to national security. Um, it, this just doesn't all happen in the DoD budget. Uh, indeed, uh, you uh, talked a little bit about the coming week.
0: Uh, tell us what the audience should be paying attention to because it's an action-packed week.
2: Well, it's the debt ceiling is going to be the, the big issue. I think I'd keep an eye. Markets aren't aren't always good at this fog, but I wrote about it on my Monday, my Sunday night note, which is you know this gap between. The one and three-year T-bill rates, which is unusual, um, that's, that's one sign of stresses in the markets. The other thing <clears throat> is to look at credit default swaps. They are elevated for the United States. Uh, I think the reading this morning was around 128 or 129. You know, normally they're down in the teens, you know, the market is getting a little antsy here uh, about, you know, can Washington really resolve this in a, in a clean and simple manner? Um, there are going to be more congressional hearings this week. Uh, Royal United Services Institute does a sea power um conference, I believe on Thursday in London. It looked very it looked like a very good lineup of speakers that are gonna talk about sea power in a global context. And I think we'll also hear a little bit more about AUKUS and and how that's all gonna to come together. So you're right, it is gonna be a very uh, busy week. Once again, Byron, thanks very much as always. Uh, really appreciate it. Have a great week and look forward to
0: having you uh... on on again next week. Thanks again. Always a pleasure, Vago. Thanks. And joining us now is Laura J. Winter, the host of the Downlink podcast, our weekly thoughtful look at all things space. Uh, Laura, thanks so very much for joining us.
3: Oh, Vago, it's great to be back.
0: Uh, Indeed, uh, a pleasure. And it's a pleasure to have you back after a grueling national space, uh, space symposium. We talked a little bit about it on yesterday's program, and we thought it's a great opportunity to have you come on and let the audience know from your standpoint, what were the biggest takeaways?
3: There were a number of really big takeaways that were coming out of Colorado Springs. First takeaway, Secretary of the Air Force uh, Frank Kendall uh, definitely showed that he is very annoyed with Congress and he's placing the blame um, at Congress's feet for the Space Force not moving fast enough. He says that there are about 12 projects that are kind of on hold because he says that they don't have the correct authorities to move out and start spending money, not a lot of money, but some money in trying to get these projects up and running. And his greatest fear is basically continuing resolutions, continuing resolutions, continuing resolutions. Uh, the other thing that he said that I thought was really uh, kind of cute and definitely uh, came full circle is that if you remember when uh, Secretary Kendall said at his confirmation hearing that his top three priorities were China, 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 well, he ended his keynote speech with a quote, with with I quote rather, that quote, the key to China, China, China is space, space, space. So right. that's what the SECAF really you know, kept pounding away on. The other thing though, that I thought was really interesting was how far forward um, the chief of space operations was leaning. And in that, I mean, he basically told everybody, we're way too comfortable here. We're getting complacent and complacency is just not going to win the day that everybody needs to embrace taking more risks and embrace being uncomfortable because the rate of change is so rapid that he called this time in space development, the era of the exponential. And in that he was, saying that there's just so much now going on in space, in the commercial sector, in the civil sector, as well as in the security sector. And I mean the security sector because it's not just defense, but it's also what our adversaries are also fielding up in orbit. And he really just put everyone on notice and said, we've got to start doing this. Otherwise, you know, the young folks inside the Space Force are going to start telling the big companies and the small companies, hey, we don't want your stuff. We're going to go over here. And that was really interesting. And that was definitely heard by um, Dave Broadbent, who is the new president of Raytheon and C2, who basically said that the company is really looking at different ways of doing business because it's a lot more competitive in his marketplace.
0: Um, We've uh, heard uh, numerous times from Secretary Kendall, uh, the implications uh, of uh, life on continuing resolutions, uh, given how many high priority efforts the service is trying to launch, which you of course can't do uh, unless you have properly appropriated uh, funding. As we discussed on uh, yesterday's program, uh, SpaceX uh, tested uh, the Starship for the first time in an orbital configuration on the super heavy rocket with 33 uh, methane powered engines that produce uh, 17 million pounds of thrust. Sadly, the rocket uh, came uh, apart or rather was uh, destroyed uh, by uh, SpaceX. The company, uh, after it went out of control four minutes into flight, company has termed it a success. Uh, while uh, others have said, well, it's more of an evolutionary step. Obviously, very complicated piece of hardware, uh, and and uh, certainly it's it, you know it's important to ring out all of these. right? a lot of lessons were learned from your standpoint. What were the key takeaways from uh, the test flight?
3: Key takeaway from the test flight is this: SpaceX successfully lifted a rocket and launch system that is twenty-eight stories tall. Right. That's not so easy to do. Nobody's done it before, ever. The other key takeaway is that, yeah, it didn't reach orbit. And a lot of people were hoping that it was going to reach orbit. I think a lot of people were thinking, well, you know, SpaceX has Falcon 9 and they're able to get to orbit, you know, all the time with that launch system. Well, this system's different. It's bigger, it's using a different fuel, and they are still trying to figure it out. You know, at the same time, people might say it is a failure. No one wants to see things blow up. But in another sense, it's kind of exciting because a company took a big risk as well as the FAA and embracing risk right now is something that, well, should be celebrated.
0: And, and uh, you have uh, pointed out, right, that because uh, the Boeing rocket uh, had a little bit of uh, challenge with its self-destruct system, that this... Uh, test actually proved that something absolutely critical, which is why you have no-fly zones and you tend to shoot uh, out over the water. God forbid when when something goes wrong. Let me just ask you uh, a question. You know that some people have raised, like, look, why did Musk do this now? And the way that he did it, right? Uh, were there financial reasons? And obviously, you could ask that with Twitter uh, underwater and Tesla margins uh, declining. But more broadly, folks, some folks were left scratching their heads. Right? No flame diverter, no water deluge system concrete spall may have damaged the rocket and certainly you know damaged the destroyed the launch pad and and damaged the the tanks nearby but from your perspective this is sort of how SpaceX has been operating in Boca Chica isn't it
3: It is. I mean, ever since Hopper was being tested and it blew up and, you know, set brush around uh, the area of test uh, ablaze, right? And it's actually really angered a lot of local residents and caused a real schism within the community because there are people in the community that want SpaceX there, obviously, to start a space industry and, 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 you know, create jobs. And then there are a lot of people that have moved to Boca Chica in their retirement and would rather their windows not be blown in. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird situation down there. And this is the way that SpaceX has been testing things out with, well, maybe not quite everything that they need ready to go.
0: But more uh, specifically, in terms of how people should think about this, right? We got into a mm-hmm. conversation on yesterday's program uh, on how to think about star uh, starship. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you and I have talked a little bit about, you know, sort of other ways that folks should be thinking about it. Give us, give us your, your sense.
3: Well, what the thing is, is that when we think of starship, we shouldn't just be thinking about the business case for low earth orbit. And the business case for low Earth orbit is possibly questionable because the Falcon 9 and other launch companies like uh, Rocket Lab, for instance, you know there's a lot of very good service going to low Earth orbit, possibly even to medium Earth orbit, maybe to geostationary maybe. But low Earth orbit is well well served now. And in fact, they're, you know, launch companies that are going out of business because it's so well served. The thing about Starship and the super heavy um, booster rocket is that Musk's intention for this is the end goal of building a city on Mars, but we don't really ever remember that there are all these waypoints and lily pads in between that are necessary to actually get there. And he's essentially building the railroad for space. And that's complete with refueling and resupply depots, science stations, a moon-based industrial complex. I mean, the Starship is being built for transporting a lot of people at once up to 100 and hauling and storing stuff in space. I mean, the refueling and resupply depots will be windowless starships so it's just a bit it's just a bit bigger and all this is also in line with US government policy and lilypad number 1 is establishing an industrial base on the moon that can scale rapidly
0: Laura thanks very much for joining us uh absolute pleasure and obviously his ultimate goal is to get to the red planet Uh, where uh, we can become an interplanetary uh, species and it's going to be interesting uh, to watch. Thanks so very much again. Welcome back uh, and look forward to having you back on again soon and keep up the good work and to the audience, check out the downlink every week uh, with uh, the one and only Laura J. Winter. Laura, thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Vago.